Kansas anymore. Are you ready? No, I'm just getting warmed up. This task was appointed to you. I said I want the truth! I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. Dodge that. And welcome back to the BBFC podcast. Today I'm joined by Chris, our compliance manager, and Matt, our senior policy officer. Welcome back. It's great to be back. We've talked about superhero films plenty of times before, from our Wonder Woman and Avengers Infinity War podcast to our Suicide Squad podcast, but we're not done yet. So far, 2022 has been the year for superhero films, bringing people back into the cinema in droves. For this podcast, we'll be taking a look at some more recent superhero releases, and this time, they've taken a darker turn. In recent months, we've seen an uplift in superhero movies centred around anti-heroes, and as the Batman would put it, vengeance. I'm not going to do the voice, but I know you do it very eloquently, Chris. I'm vengeance. As moral lines blur and villains become heroes, we'll be taking a look at three recent releases, the Batman, Morbius and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness and we'll be telling you everything you need to know about their classification. So Chris, to get people started here, how has the superhero genre changed in terms of tone and audience recently? Um, so like you say, like this year has started out with some slightly kind of darker superhero films but I don't think it's really kind of sign of a, a big sea change in terms of like the genre at large but one of the things I'd say is that we do seem to have more variety in terms of tone than ever. Uh, obviously like we have had it in the past, you know, you look at you know the Christopher Reeve uh, Superman films, compare those to the Michael Keaton Batman, you know, there's always kind of been differences in the way that people approach superhero films uh, and some people have talked about are we reaching a point of saturation with superhero films now um, but I think as long as we keep giving like variety we've had things like Joker, The Batman, uh, Logan and things as well where they've gone down a more serious route and uh, we've had the kind of full blood and guts comedy of things like Deadpool, uh, The Suicide Squad, uh, Birds of Prey the MCU is kind of known for being like slightly lighter and, and quippy and fun. We've had things like uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which aims like slightly more at a younger audience and things as well as a as an animated film. So as long as like we keep getting this variety of tones and approaches and things, and I think audiences are still going to keep coming to them, and they you know they are coming out. You look at the success of Spider-Man No Way Home, like it's uh, almost as big as Endgame. It's been like a huge hit for a lot of people. It was their first cinema trip post-pandemic as well. So yeah, audiences are still coming out for superhero films. There's still something that they enjoy. Yes, audiences do tend to veer slightly more male for a lot of these films. It's roughly around 60% for a lot. But we're also seeing more diversity coming through with an awful lot of superhero films as well. So things like Black Widow, Shang-Chi, Eternals last year, Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman 984 in last few years as well. Birds of Prey was a good example as well. So the more diverse the films are, the more diverse the audiences are as well. So they're kind of growing as well. So it's all looking very good, I think, for the, for the genre at the moment. Yeah, so it's a bit of a spectrum really, isn't it, in terms of what you're looking for in the superhero genre? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Um, Matt, why do you think we're seeing an uplift in kind of anti-hero characters as as the protagonists i don't know sort of as chris says there whether it's a, an uplift or not or it's something that's always been there this variety um i mean batman obviously is a mainstay going back to the adam west series in the 1960s which was on tv when i was a kid and i loved it and i don't think i necessarily understood that it it was a comedy it was always just like oh god batman's in a serious scrape this time how how is he going to get out of it <laughs> but then obviously the tim burton films and then the christopher nolan films there has been this trajectory towards darker and darker iterations of Batman, but that just reflects 
the source material, I think. Like, he is a dark character in the comics, and there are comics specifically aimed at older readers rather than children. So stories by Alan Moore or Frank Miller that, that really explore, you know, those darker elements. I think it's it's something that fans have been clamouring for and obviously something that's been delivered in the new Batman film. Yeah, so what's the appeal of the vigilante? Oh, well... I know, as soon as you say that word, I immediately think of like Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood <laughs> and things like that, that kind of you know, vigilante. But yeah, there is that kind of idea of you know, vigilante justice and you know, someone kind of being outside of the law. You could go right back to Westerns and like think about you know, the gunslingers and, and posses and things there. If you think of all those kind of like 60s and 70s crime thrillers and things as well. And then obviously Batman is kind of like key example in the superhero world of a, of a vigilante. In terms of the appeal, I think your know, cinema has always been about like wish fulfillment fantasies and like living vicariously through someone on screen. So, you know, as a society, there's a whole set of kind of rules and laws and things that we live by. So there's something cathartic and a bit of a release of going to see a film about someone who can transgress those rules, but without any kind of real repercussions in the real world. So, you know, you think of how many cop thrillers and things as well. You know, a cop who doesn't play by the rules and things like that. <laughs> and there is some fun of just seeing people go outside of that norm. So I think that's kind of part of the big appeal. Tied to that as well, you've also got things like film noir, where you have private investigators, even like Sherlock Holmes is an example of someone who is kind of doing things related to the law, but outside of that. And it can you know, be a useful tool for kind of storytellers and things to explore stuff that's slightly... You know, morally grey and dubious in terms of like, is what they're doing right? Should they be abiding by the law? Is them pursuing what they think is justice, you know, correct? And that's something where, you know, Batman comics and things kind of stem from that kind of film noir and, and things era from the kind of 30s and 40s. So he plays into that and especially going into like the new, the Batman uh, film from this year and things like that really keys into to film noir and Batman being a detective mm-hmm. and kind of working with the law but also outside the law and things. So it kind of explores that morally grey area and things, which again, I think is a a really good point for drama. Yeah, and it really humanises those characters, doesn't it? When you can see that they make mistakes. There's all those shiny superheroes, like the Superman films that I remember from being a kid where, you know, Clark can't really do anything wrong. So it's really nice to see like a bit more diversity in terms of morality there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, you talk about like your earlier question about the kind of the way that tone has changed. And we do kind of see like, you know, with the Marvel films where... You know, from Captain America Civil War and things, they start to deal with the consequences of their actions. Mm. So you know, Batman versus Superman again was kind of dealing with the consequences of what happened in Man of Steel. So there seems to be like a general thing in superhero films now where they're kind of recognising consequences to actions even more and kind of exploring some of the, not real world as such, but kind of some of the ramifications of those actions as well, um, which you know, makes the characters even more interesting, I think. Definitely. So moving on to The Batman, um, Matt Reeves' The Batman hit cinemas in early March, dominating the UK island box office and generating $13.5 million in its opening weekend. It stars Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz, along with a well-disguised Colin Farrell, and it's quite a lengthy film, nearly hitting the three-hour mark. Matt, how many hours have you spent watching The Batman? Well, I've seen it three times now, so I guess that's it must be approaching nine hours over the last couple of months. That's very impressive. It's a, it's a lot of Batman. And I mean, this film is quite an interesting one for us to discuss as a cinema in Belfast requested a different classification for this film. Matt, can you tell me a little bit more about the decision in Belfast? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing to say is that the BBFC classifies cinema films in the UK on behalf of local authorities. So it's actually the local authority who is, is responsible for granting licences to cinemas in their area. 
And when a cinema applies for a licence, the licence must include a condition requiring that admission be restricted in accordance with either the BBFC age rating or with a recommendation made by the, the licensing authority. So what this means, in effect, is that uh, local authorities are able to vary BBFC age ratings if they choose to. So, for example, they could you know, give a film a, a higher rating or a lower rating. They could classify a film that we have deemed unsuitable for classification, or they could ban something from being exhibited in their area, which we have classified. In relation to the Batman, Belfast City Council, as you say, they received a request from a local cinema owner to allow the film to be exhibited in their area as a 15A. So this is interesting, of course, because 15A is not a certificate that exists in the UK, but the idea was that it would function in the same way as the 12A does. So you know, children younger than 15 would be allowed to be admitted to the film if they were accompanied by an adult. And that request was ultimately granted. And so the Batman, while a 15 in the rest of the UK, was released as a 15A in Belfast. And how common is it for local authorities to really challenge an age rating? Yeah, it's it's pretty rare. I mean, it happens very infrequently these days. Before the Batman, the most recent notable example was a documentary called A Northern Soul, which came out in 2018. Again, that was a film we classified 15 uh, for strong language. There are about 20 uses of strong language in the film. But a small number of councils chose to reduce the classification to 12A following a campaign by the filmmaker because children featured in the documentary wanted children to be able to get into the cinema to see it and a handful of councils agreed that it should be allowed. Other past examples, notable titles include the first Spider-Man film in 2002, Sam Raimi's film. That was classified 12 by the BBFC, but it was released as a PG or even in some areas as a PG-12 because this predated the introduction of the 12A so that children under 12 could get in to see the film. Obviously, they were really keen to, to, to do so. It's Spider-Man, who doesn't love Spider-Man? A film that's not suitable for children, but um, quite a notable example is uh, David Cronenberg's Crash from 1996. We classified that film 18 uncut, but it was banned from being exhibited in Westminster. And we've got a case study on our website that sort of sets out that whole story and equally we've got one on spider-man as well i know so if listeners are interested in reading more they can find those on the website great so chris can you tell me how we classify the batman and maybe why there has been so much contention about the age rating sure so we first saw the film in january which got admit was a bit of a test for for me like keeping my mouth shut for afterwards and things because <laughs> i was just so excited about it but yeah so we first saw the film in january it was submitted for advice which is a service that we offered um, so distributors or filmmakers can submit their films ahead of formal classification and that enables them to kind of get an idea right in advance and things of what classification it's likely to get uh, sometimes advice viewings are of incomplete or unfinished versions of films, but it helps filmmakers and distributors get an, get an idea of what they might need to change to get a preferred rating. So it was submitted with a 12A request, and we were aware at the time that it had been given a PG-13 in the States, which is a rating which often, but not always, equates to a kind of 12A over here. Uh, one of the key kind of differences, which we'll probably get onto, is to do with kind of tone and kind of threat and horror and things as well. So yeah, so when we viewed the film, this is quite quite a new take on the Batman character. Obviously, we've had kind of slightly darker takes with you know the side of uh, verse, uh, and then with uh, the you know, the Christopher Nolan ones beforehand. But this is kind of getting really down and dirty on kind of street level film noir style um, vision of Batman as as a detective, you know, hunting down a serial killer. You know, this uh, serial killer, the Riddler, is using like a variety of different kind of traps and and techniques and things to kind of kill his victims 
suspend them in kind of states of terror and things beforehand as well. So it's quite a kind of uh, a nasty kind of grisly version of kind of Gotham and the world of that Batman's inhabiting. In terms of the content, um, there are some sequences of strong violence. And one of the aggravating factors there was the fact that Batman himself is the person who's meeting out a lot of this violence. Some of the the fight scenes and things, there's just repeated blows over and over again. And all of this is aggravated overall by the threat that's in the film. There are some sequences of quite intense threat where they're visually discreet. We're not seeing an awful lot of detail, but it's implied quite horrific things are happening. Like we see one character is implied their face is going to be eaten by rats. Another person has a bomb put around their neck and there's quite a drawn out sequence of their terror um, as like the counters ticking down as to whether or not they're going to survive and these kind of sequences just transgressed what we typically permit at 12a all of that as i say was kind of aggravated by the overall tone of the film as well which was just very bleak and despairing from for much of the film and how important is tone when we're looking at these films Sure. So if people are familiar with our guidelines and things, although we go through the categories and we talk about different kind of classification issues like violence and threat, one of the wider things that we consider and it's kind of discussed at the start of our guidelines is tone and impact. It's something that's come through from a lot of our research. And when we're talking to people, they say how even if we're not actually seeing a certain thing occur, the it can still have an awful lot of impact. And through the kind of the tone, the feel of the film, that can also impact as well. So with the case of the Batman, like the world that he's inhabiting is very dark and bleak and despairing. You know, we don't see an awful lot of kind of daytime scenes and things in it. Quite horrible things happen to a lot of characters. You know, most of the institutions around the city and things are revealed to be corrupt. You know, it is really bleak. There's a lot of kind of murders, underworld clubs, drugs. So the world of the film is is very bleak, which also has to aggravate the different issues in it. So again, this kind of indicated a, a 15 rather than a 12A. Yeah, it's such a sustained feeling of threat, isn't it, that doesn't really ever seem to go away throughout the film, so it's interesting. And many people have made the uh, comparison between the Batman and the Dark Knight, which we kind of briefly touched on earlier. Shortlist called it the darkest of Dark Knights. Uh, what made this film maybe darker in tone? Yeah, I mean, we did think an awful lot about the like the Dark Knight when we were classifying it. You know, it's still one of those kind of quite controversial decisions in our history. But when you think of some of the kind of films which have been the most complained about films of the year, yeah, you know, more recently, yeah, we've had things like Forty Complaints, and that made I think it was Spectre like the most complained about film of that year. By comparison, The Dark Knight was met with 364 complaints of people who thought that the 12A was too low and it should have been a 15. You know, subsequently, we asked people as part of our research whether or not they agreed with the 12A, and 70% of the public like did vote in favour of the 12A and say that you know, they thought that was the right rating. Um, but considering normally when we ask that question, we're getting in like the 90s for agreement, mm-hmm. 70% is like quite low for us, so... We're very aware that the Dark Knight is, you know, is still a kind of controversial decision. We stand by the 12A, but it is a really borderline call. And this one, as you say, like the Batman is so much darker than the Dark Knight. There's quite a thing with you know, Christopher Nolan kind of approach to the Dark Knight. There's big kind of spectacular action, you know, slightly larger than life characters with things as well. Whereas this one, there's not that much action in uh, in the Batman. And considering it's a three-hour film, it's far more a kind of crime thriller. Seven, like the David Fincher film, was quite a big inspiration on it. So, yeah, just in terms of, like, the feel of the film, it's quite different to The Dark Knight. So, again, like, visually, although 
like The Dark Knight, it's not showing an awful lot of detail. Uh, we just felt tonally and things, it, it went even further than The Dark Knight. And it also included a number of things which our research has kind of highlighted as areas of concern for young people. So in our last uh, last guidelines research in 2019, we talked to a number of young people, you know, even those kind of like 12, 13, 14, so within the kind of the 12A age range. And one of the things that they said was that things to do with real-world threat carry so much more impact and are so much more disturbing and upsetting and distressing for them. And specific things that they uh, called out were... You know, acts of terrorism, you know, things to do with kidnapping, and that kind of stuff like plays into what's in uh, the Batman as well. So that was kind of one of the things that kind of influenced the decision to go with the 15. And uh, you mentioned it briefly earlier, Matt, but we're going to talk about on the other side of the spectrum, maybe Batman Forever. So Jim Carrey recently said that he has mixed emotions over the dark depiction of poor Dano's Riddler. How does this version compare to kind of Joel Schumacher's Batman? Yeah, so the Riddler in the Batman is obviously a much darker character with uh, more sinister means, sinister aims, whereas the the sort of Jim Carrey character in the Schumacher film, which was a film that I absolutely loved when I was a kid, 1995, Batman Forever, it's quite a comedic performance. Jim Carrey's performance, obviously, quite over the top. That's what he's doing. It's really drawing on, again, we mentioned it earlier, but the 1960s Adam West series, the portrayal of the Riddler in that series by Frank Gorshin, Carrey loved that and he wanted to bring that through in his performance as well and he, and he does it's a it's a fun performance but a million miles away from from how you see the riddler in the batman yeah i actually watched it last night just to remind myself because it's been 15 20 years i think since i've seen batman forever and one thing i noticed was his glasses when he's like edward nigma at the start uh, it's the same kind of clear plastic frames and things that the paul dano riddler has in the new one oh, wow. so I, I don't know if that was a little like a reference or not but I was just when I saw that I was like oh that's that's kind of interesting I noted I think maybe it was on my second viewing of the Batman there's one point where they they have IDs with the Riddler's real name on it but it's not Edward Nigma. I guess they didn't want to keep the pun it's like Edward Nash or something boring like that going back to the other one the uh that sequence when he's like Batman visit well Bruce Wayne as he is there visits uh, Edward Nigma in the the lab or whatever that he's working in. John Favreau is like one of his assistants in that sequence. Oh. So uh, yeah, before he was Daredevil's helper and Iron Man's helper, he was Batman's helper. Wow. So they're so yeah. far apart, but there are some similarities. <laughs> Just about, yeah. <laughs> and this version really draws on popular culture, which really lends itself to the darker tone, specifically social media and the way that the Riddler communicates with the world through the internet. Um, do you think talking about these scenes can be a useful springboard for parents to talk about social media more generally? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've asked parents, you know, what do you think about using films as springboards, you know, ways to talk about difficult issues perhaps with children? And um, 63% of parents agreed with us that, yeah, films and TV series as well are really, really good ways to, you know, open up what might otherwise be, you know, quite a difficult conversation to to begin with a child or a young person. And in terms of, you know, staying safe online, there's loads of brilliant resources out there that parents can refer to, you know, resources from expert bodies that that we work with, organisations like Bernardo's and and Childnet, Internet Matters, and the Children's Commissioner's Office recently published some really really good resources as well. And and of course, on our own children's website, CBBFC, we have um, lots of our own resources that parents can refer to when they're watching films at home with their children you know, ways to broaden the conversation out and and really get into the issues that um, different works are presenting. 
Great. So moving on to Morbius, which is the third film in Sony Pictures' universe of Marvel. This is directed by Daniel Espinosa. Um, it stars Jared Leto as Dr. Michael Morbius, alongside Matt Smith, Adria Arjona, Jared Harris and Tyrese Gibson. In the film, Morbius becomes a living vampire after curing himself from a rare disease. I remember in the Spider-Man comics, you know, reading about Morbius as a kid and he was initially kind of an enemy of Spider-Man. Um, he's since evolved into more of an anti-hero character. What do you think people were expecting from this film? Well, certainly the the marketing of the film, you know, like the the sort of Venom films which preceded it, they they did pitch this as a as a sort of darker superhero film. You know, he's a vampire, as you say, a living vampire. So obviously, there's the elements of sucking blood, and he's got the sort of you know the the features and the fangs that that, that transform when he goes into vampire mode. So, you know, absolutely, it was it was out there as this is a, a slightly scarier version of of a Marvel character. Yeah, I mentioned the uh, you know the advice uh, service that we offer and things earlier. So, uh, Sony submitted like various trailers and things for advice because they were looking to to get a twelve A version to put in front of you know similar sim- superhero films and and blockbusters um, coming out prior. But you know they were clearly leaning into aspects of horror and things in the trailer. So it was kind of warning audiences beforehand of you know, what kind of tone they were going for with the film. But yeah, it presented some challenges and things, kind of getting a 12A edit out of some of these trailers, which were particularly scary in some cases. And how did we ultimately rate Morbius? Uh, so we classified Morbius uh, 15 for strong threat, horror and violence, um, which is this kind of similarish rating to uh, the Venom films, which are still in the same kind of like Sony universe, taking some of these villainous characters and, and making them more of, uh, of anti-heroes. Um, so some of the stronger moments in the film, like it does like lean into horror. There's you know, one particular sequence in like a, a corridor where there's flashing lights and you know, someone kind of seeing something in the distance and feeling scared and things, and then you know, clawed, clawed hand reaches out and grabs her. There's other kind of sequences where we do get some kind of blood splatter onto the screen. There's a quite notable kind of blood splatter when uh, uh, Morbius is slashed by another character. And there are a few kind of other similar sequences and attack on a boat and things as well, which just kind of, again, kind of transgressed what we normally permit at 12A. And within this kind of slightly darker, slightly horrorish tone in certain sequences, just kind of t- uh, took it into 15. And um, as you mentioned, it relies quite heavily on the horror genre. And there are some jump scares, um, which I always like to be made aware of before I watch a film because I'm very jumpy. Um, How do jump scares kind of impact the classification of a film? So it kind of varies in things. Like some filmmakers and things use jump scares for quite comic effect. So if there is that kind of like immediate kind of you know, reveal of something, people are scared for something that turns out to just be a cat or something like that coming out. It, that can, like, you know, even out the tone and things. But at 12A and things, we wouldn't expect to see, like, two prolonged sequences of threat. And if there are kind of quite intense moments during that, light jump scares and things, that can aggravate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this one, like, just the duration of some of the sequences as well was what kind of contributed to the 15. Great. And, and the director, um, I read, revealed that he found inspiration for Morbius in a really unlikely place through Pokemon. Does the kind of fantastical nature, the special effects you mentioned, the flashing lights, did that have a bearing on the age rating? I'm not entirely sure that there was all that much Pokemon that I could detect in in Morbius, but definitely fantastical sort of special effects sequences, you know, they can have an impact on the age rating the further something gets away from reality. You know, often, you know, we feel like we can be more lenient there but in the case of Morbius while it does have certainly in the third act the sort of big 
epic special effects laden showdown that you would expect between Michael Morbius and, and his opponent. It's really the the earliest scenes that decided the classification. So the scenes like Chris mentioned earlier, the hallway where the, the nurse is attacked by the vampire and the scene aboard the boat where Morbius first transforms into into the vampire um, form. Uh, th- those scenes were, you know, dark and the threat was sustained in a way that exceeds our guidelines at 12A. Saying all that, though, I would love to see Jared Leto play Squirtle in a film. I think he could do it. He would probably carry his home on his back for, like, weeks leading up to it, (laughs) just live in water and things. Yeah, I I absolutely... If anyone can do it, it's Jared. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so... Move on to the final film we'll t- be discussing today. Um, this is the latest release, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, director Sam Raimi's latest instalment of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This film really kind of draws on Sam Raimi's expertise in the kind of horror and action genre. And Kevin Feige, president of Marvel Studios, said that the Multiverse of Madness will be a horror film and that with Sam Raimi at the helm, fans of The Evil Dead 2 specifically will be really happy. How much influence does the director's style have on the rating for this film? Yeah, so it's quite an interesting one. So uh, yeah, we'll try and keep this spoiler free because I know like when this podcast comes out, the film's going to be quite new in cinemas and things. So uh, I won't go into too much detail. But the opening kind of like 30 to 40 minutes and things of the film is, is kind of what you expect from a Marvel film. Yeah, it's relatively light, quippy. There's some kind of monster action and things. And then, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, like the film's following Doctor Strange. He encounters this young woman who can traverse dimensions but is being hunted for a power. So he kind of follows her through these dimensions to try and protect her from this sinister threat. And once they start tra- traveling to these different dimensions, where like the rules of you know physics and, and our reality and things start to change, there's alternate versions of characters and things in there. And once um, this part of the journey starts, this is where like the Sam Raimi-ness and his experience doing the Evil Dead trilogy, uh, you know, Drag Me to Hell, films like that, that's where this really starts to kick in. You know, the colour palette kind of starts to go a bit darker, the tone gets darker, we start to see more of these horror elements, and there's things to do with like reanimated corpses and demons and witches and all of this stuff, and you can kind of see you know, Sam Raimi having an awful lot of fun with it. Especially because of the fact, you know, he did the, the Spider-Man trilogy with Tobey Maguire as well. So he's got both prior in superhero world and, you know, the horror genre and things. So he's kind of just bringing all these kind of toys and experiences and things that he's got to, to bear on Doctor Strange. Does this mean that you kind of mentioned like the witches and, and uh, these are elements we've probably seen in Marvel before. Maybe not witches, but, you know, some of the more mythological kind of characters. Does kind of the horror genre and like the, the exploration of that mean that it's a really good gateway for young people if they're looking to get into horror? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you mentioned earlier in terms of like you know, the way that audiences and the tone and things of horror of uh, superhero films is changing. Um, and one of the ways is exploring kind of different genres and different ways of kind of approaching these films. And the Marvel films like within the MCU do seem to be branching out into more kind of magic and cosmic stuff, you know, different planets and worlds and things. So there's a lot of kind of like new area and stuff to play with in, in here. One of the things which kind of kept it at the 12A level was the fact that so many of the characters are well established. So even those who are kind of villainous in this, you know, this particular story are ones that you know, audiences are familiar with and kind of know what to expect from, which kind of helped keep it in this, you know, this realm. 
but also like you know it is having an awful lot of fun with a lot of the horror iconography yeah there are some jump scares and things in here you know as I mentioned all these kind of like demons and, and different entities as well so uh, you know for a lot of audiences and things who you know like superhero films but maybe aren't as used to horror you know there are elements of this which could be a good gateway into that you know the horror genre um i think we're also going to have a listicle on our website and things which people can check out which go and recommend some other kind of pg12 level horror films that people could use to to get into this yeah we're definitely going to have that resource available and i think you actually curated the list for that chris so you can blame me if anyone has nightmares (laughs) (laughs) you're welcome some great ones on there Coraline, obviously jaws makes an appearance yeah yeah that's the thing it's like horror kind of it encapsulates so many different things you think of aliens as sci-fi horror and all this things so you know this is a kind of good example of Doctor Strange with kind of superhero horror obviously the Sam Raimi and things like because he's had this background with, with superhero films like he knows how to rein it in at just the right moment so in this case you know it didn't go too far and you know take it into the uh, into the realms of 15 so he's kept it in in the 12a again there are some impressionistically quite kind of grisly moments but you know he doesn't go into into too much detail and like with Marvel films there's always that element of kind of fun there's some good like quippy moments and things in there as well which kind of lightens the tone enough to to again kind of keep it at the 12a level um but yeah it's a it's a very entertaining one but is there anything as scary as the dr octopus hospital scene in spider-man 2 i still think that's the pinnacle to be honest (laughs) i'd say that there are there are some like jump moments in this i can't i can't spoil it there's one in particular which did make me jump the first time we saw it nice and yeah there's a a couple of unexpected moments there's there's one sequence i think a lot of people are going to be talking about in the middle of the film where uh should we say there's some cameos Cameos, you say. Yeah, and I, th- I think people are going to get a kick out of that sequence. Excellent. Look it's the worst it. thing in the world working in an office with people that have seen all of these films <laughs> before they've come out, and we typically don't get to see them, and we're like, please tell me what happens. <laughs> and Scarlet Witch makes a quite big appearance. People will remember that from WandaVision as well, if they've watched that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, she is kind of the antagonist of the film in a lot of ways. So, uh, yeah, for people who've watched the series and things on Disney+, Plus, this is kind of leading on from that. Um, there's key kind of plot elements and things to do with, with WandaVision, which play into Doctor Strange. Um, but again, having that background that most audiences and things coming to Doctor Strange will be familiar with and have probably watched WandaVision or watched previous Marvel films, again, that kind of worked in the film's favour in terms of it being a known quantity and knowing these characters and being able to kind of understand the reasoning behind it, comparing it to something like you know, Morbius or Venom, where you know the tone, again, is, is darker, the characters are, are less familiar to people, and there is a kind of sense of, like with Venom, he wants to eat people, that's one of his big things. Whereas in this one, we kind of understand the character motivations a little bit more in terms of what they're after and, and understand that as well. Okay, and we haven't actually mentioned this, but what's what's included in the ratings info? How did we actually rate it? Uh, yeah, so it's rated 12A for moderate horror, violence, threat and injury detail. The injury detail is an interesting one in that there's a, we do allow occasional gory images um, at 12A. There is some kind of monster gore, um, which is, is kind of quite fun and, and comical almost. But there are a couple of moments where we do see kind of, uh, some injuries to you know, superhuman characters. There's a particularly kind of notable leg wound in the in the opening sequence, and we see some kind of gashes to someone's face, and that kind of plays into, to be honest, it's in the trailers, but the reanimation of a corpse as well. Which, so, which reminded me very much of the What If series on, on Disney+, Plus, where they do the zombie episode. Is that kind of the inspiration? I've not obviously seen the... 
I don't want to spoil it for you. Okay. You have to wait and see. <laughs> I just need to know. And what do parents need to know about kind of maybe the violence in the film? Sure. So most of the violence is very much within the kind of the realms of you know, the MCU. It's kind of what you're familiar with. Most of the combatants are uh, you know, superpowered beings. So you know, there's a lot of kind of throwing around explosions, energy blasts, and things like that. There are some sort of slightly stronger moments. Uh, again, like well precedented at 12A. You think of films like Rise of Skywalker and Ghostbusters and, and things like that for for some kind of similar content. But yeah, you know, we do see some people kind of being uh, blasted by energy, and they kind of seem to melt or appear like as charred corpses. There is the should we say, to the destruction of someone's head, which, again, is visually very, very discreet. It's very well framed within a kind of superhero fantastical context and things. Um, but it's just one of those things that's impressionistically is like quite a kind of shocking moment when it comes. And similarly, there's a, uh, the implication someone is cut in half, but there's no detail on screen. So again, it's been very, very careful in terms of what it shows to kind of keep it at that, that 12A level. Great. Final question. And then we're actually going to do some fun trivia, but it's only three questions and we're going to see who has the best superhero knowledge. Uh, So the final question, which I'll ask you, Matt, is most of the films, or if not all of the films we've talked, have been in the 12A, 15 kind of area. Are there any ULPG rated superhero films parents can direct their children to if they're maybe not quite ready to watch Doctor Strange or really ready to address the themes in the more darker Marvel films? Yeah, definitely. A lot that we've mentioned already, actually. Obviously, we spoke quite a bit about Batman Forever from 1995. There's also the sequel to that film, Batman and Robin. When I was a seven-year-old, I thought it was great. So um, young kids might still enjoy it today. The Christopher Reeves Superman films we've mentioned. The Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse animated film is fantastic. And we've got a movie pack for that one on CBBFC that parents can download and, and have a family movie night. Spider-Man 2, Sam Raimi's film, was a PG. The first and the third films in the trilogies are 12, so um, but the middle one, a PG. And then, of course, there's The Incredibles films from Pixar. If there are any kids out there who haven't seen those films, obviously they're, they're absolutely brilliant for, for young kids. Uh, they're both classified PG, I believe. Yeah, I was so surprised when The Incredibles had a sequel after such a long period of time. Like, I was still so excited to see it, even though I'm not the intended audience. It seems to be the Pixar way, right? They, they take their time... And then they'll they'll come out when you're least expecting it. Definitely. So to end the podcast, as I mentioned, I thought we could do a quick round of trivia. So I'm going to ask you three questions, one about each film we've talked about today. Um, and we'll see who wins. <laughs> so the first one, with a 175 minute runtime, The Batman is the longest Batman film to be premiered and the second longest comic book film to be theatrically released. What do you think is the longest? Must Endgame? be Endgame. Yeah, you both got that. (laughs) I knew these were going to be easy for you guys. Okay, Matt Smith is the third actor who played an incarnation of Doctor Who to appear in a Marvel comics film or TV show as a villain. Can you name the other two? X. David Tennant was in Jessica Jessica Jones. Jones. Mm -hmm. And the third... Oh, Peter Capaldi was in The Suicide Suicide Squad. Squad. But that's not Marvel. Did you say Marvel? Marvel. Oh, okay. Who could that be? Uh, oh, Eccleston was in Thor the Dark World. <laughs> you got it. You got it. And this one's less about superheroes, but more about uh, Sam Raimi. So Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is Sam Raimi's first directed feature film in nine years. What was his last 
feature film. Was it Spider-Man 3? Nope. Oz the Great and the Powerful? Yes. Ah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I knew this would be too easy. I spent ages on them. <laughs> well, I think... who remembers that film. <laughs> I think that makes you the winner there. I thought, I thought it was a draw. Was it Eccleston? Who came up with Eccleston? Like, that was Chris. That was Chris. <laughs> I wouldn't have got that. You're the superhero winner of the BBFC. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me, Chris and Matt. It's been a delight to chat with you. As always, if you have any questions or would like to chat to us about the podcast, drop us a message on Twitter at BBFC, Instagram at BBFC underscore age ratings, or on Facebook at British Board Film Classification. Alternatively, you can email us at podcast at bbfc.co.uk. Thank you for listening.